Hello, and welcome to episode number three of European UFOs. I'm your host, Sebastian, and if you like this episode, then please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. It really helps. Rural Norway conjures up images of idyllic lakes framed by snow-capped mountains with the occasional elk and reindeer roaming through deep and unexplored forests. Yet in the early 1980s, this scene was disrupted by a set of rather curious and uncanny phenomena. In the small and remote valley of Hestalen, around 120 kilometers southeast of Trondheim, the local population started reporting strange lights, often close to their homes. Lacking any apparent or no natural cause, these lights continue to puzzle researchers up to this day, even though their frequency has decreased since the early 1980s. Here with me to discuss this mystery is Erling Strand. He is one of the founders of Project Hestalen, which for more than 40 years has been dedicated to the study and scientific exploration of the Hestalen lights. Hello, Erling. It's great to have you on the podcast. Great uh, to be here. Thank you. <laughs> yes, well, I've been following your work and um, the Hestalen phenomenon, Hestalen lights, for quite a long time, and um, it's really you know, one of those um, UAP UFO cases that um, continues to intrigue me, and I'm probably not the only one for whom that is the case. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to today's episode. Um, however, before we get started, um, Erling, could you um, perhaps give us a bit of an overview of um, your background and how you got involved with uh, Hestalen? Well, my uh, first uh, sighting, I w- was so lucky that uh, I got a sighting during my student time in Trondheim. I, I went to uh, Trondheim Technical <laughs> School. And uh, when I was a student up there, I got my first uh, sighting uh, when I was walking home from my uh, uh, university in the middle of the day. And that triggered my interest for the topic. That was a long time ago, back in 1978. Uh, However, uh, that brought me into the subject. And uh, when uh, this uh, light phenomena in uh, Heston uh, started to show up uh, quite much, many sightings, uh, in the late uh, 1981, I got involved with this. Uh, my uh, my uh, background, you know, is um, uh, electrical, um, study at the university. Uh, I worked uh, some years uh, in uh, the private uh, uh, companies and also uh, started to lecture at the university college in Norway. And uh, after, let me see, that was 1988, I started with the lecturing at the university college in computer topics and have been doing that uh, since uh, then and I will retire now. Um, what uh, else brought me into the topic uh, Well, first of all, my sightings when I was a student. I had also a couple of more sightings in the daytime, which captured my interest. Uh, And uh, when the newspapers started to write about uh, what was happening in Hestal, 
that was, uh, I think, uh, late 1981 or early 1982. Um, um, at that time, I was uh, working as a scientist in, um, uh, or uh, actually a research fellow in um, a big company in Oslo. Uh, and uh, this uh, kept uh, brought my interest, of course, because I have always been interested in the topic since my first sighting. And uh, when uh, we, I and some friends, uh, decided to go to Hestown one weekend, and I was lucky enough to have a sighting up there as well, uh, which also increased my interest for the topic. <laughs> and when I dis- discovered that uh, people in general, or, or especially scientists at that time, back in early 80s, uh, didn't want to be involved in such uh, topics at all, even if I think uh, the subject, uh, if you if you go into the subject of studying this uh, strange phenomena or UFO phenomena or whatever you call it, I'm quite sure it will bring a lot of knowledge. Um, so that triggered me to do uh, some uh, some research or start a start a research together with some friends. And uh, uh, I think I learned a lot during the year. So that's that was my first uh, intro to the subject. Yes, no, very, very interesting. Um, can I ask you, what was that? So when you were a student, what was the um, original sighting that got all, set all of this in motion? What was that like? Was it a classic flying saucer? Was it a triangle, just a light? What did it look like? Well, it was a flying saucer, in fact. Wow. Uh, yeah. It happened in the uh, middle of the day. It was sunshine, nice weather. I was walking home from uh, the university to where I was living. And uh, w- when I was walking there alone, uh, I saw a flying disc with uh, with uh, three legs uh, beneath it, half uh, ball legs, uh, and the shape as uh, quite common, uh, which I've seen later. At that time, I um, hadn't heard or I, I wasn't nearly aware of UFOs. Um, um, but uh, when this uh, flew over my head, um, in the middle of the day, it didn't make any noise. It was uh, white. Uh, it was. Uh, it seems to be some kind of object, a uh, solid uh, object, and it uh, flew um, and, and uh, over my head and disappeared behind some trees. Um, and uh, I, of course, wondered wondered what was that. And 
not so far after that happening, uh, there was an official um, meeting of a local UFO group in Trondheim, uh, which should present themselves and what I was doing. And of course, I went to that uh, presentation to listen to what they were saying. And uh, I become part of that group. And um, then after that, I more and more got involved in the topic. And we have meeting and uh, investigation and a lot of different things. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. So, I, I mean, yeah, as someone who's also had a, you know, had a um, UFO experience in the past, uh, can just imagine the impact it had on you because I know the feeling all too well when you see something in the sky, which your rational mind can't make any sense of. And if you're, um, you know, scientifically curious as you are, it just really nags at you all the time. You know, what, what was this? What I saw? So I completely get you know get how this um set everything in motion for you great so we're in the early 80s um you had this personal sighting you got involved with a local ufo group and then um, the newspapers start reporting on um Herr stalin um now before we delve into what was actually happening there could you give our listeners because a lot of them are from the usa actually um kind of could you set the scene? What Herr Stalin is like? Um, what a, if you if you were to you know have some holidays there? What would it be like? Yes, Herr Stalin is a small valley in the southern part of Norway, only fifteen kilometers, about ten miles long, and uh, it's a nice uh, valley. Uh, people go up there for the nature you have mountains uh, in uh, in um, the western part of the valley and also on the eastern part of the valley and there are several small lakes where you can go fishing and uh, you can also it's also a popular for hunters who want to hunt the birds and so on uh, so uh, it's it's a quite a good, I would say, nice uh, valley, and just to visit to have the experience of the nature. It's uh, of course uh, one possibility, uh, and uh, uh, we have wondered uh, why uh, this small valley. Uh, in the middle of Norway, in the southern part of Norway, not so far from uh, Røros town and not so very far from the um, uh, Swedish border either. Um, the valley is located about 120 kilometers south of Trondheim city. Um, well, this uh, small valley though, uh, where it's a beautiful nature, and then suddenly in that valley something started to happen in late yeah. 1981. 
And I believe this is when the um, first reports came out of that rather remote valley and the newspapers picked up on it, right? What did the um, newspapers, the media report and what caught your attention there? The newspaper started to write about the sightings the people had and it was so many of them. So in the beginning, people just living there. It's about, uh, at that time, 200 people totally in that valley. Uh, they started to talk uh, between itself. But when it happened so quite often, um, the newspapers started to write about it. And uh, people, uh, many people uh, reading the newspaper, they went up to the valley to try to see it for themselves, which many did. I could also mention that, uh, you know, the word UFO, it was used in uh, in um, uh, beginning of the 80s. And uh, at that time, many people in general, and especially scientists, was a little bit skeptical about when they was using that word. Uh, but, uh, uh, so th- there was a lot of ridiculing of the people uh, who have seen it, and especially the, the inhabitants of the valley. Uh, they were ridiculed in the press. And of course, that upset them a lot. Um, but of course, uh, when many people who took the opportunity to go there, took the weekend maybe, to uh, and stood up in the mountains um, around the valley looking for the light, uh, it was mostly light, um, absolutely. And when they saw it themselves, that uh, made, I'm sure, quite big impression of these people, as it did with me. Yeah, so you were one of those people who, in the early days of the phenomenon, when it was so common, actually went to Stalin and then had yet another actual visual sighting of what was um, happening. Could you describe that, your first um, sighting in Stalin that then got you um, got you more interested? Yes, we were a group of friends. Uh, I think we were about uh, seven or eight people who decided to go up there. From most of us lived in the main capital, Oslo, which is about 400 kilometers away from uh, this valley. So we decided to take a weekend up there. After work on Friday, we went up and uh, stayed in tents. <laughs> Sounds like a lovely trip. <laughs> yes. love to do that. Yeah. And uh, just before it became dark, we went up out to different locations. We decided to split uh, the group in uh, three different uh, uh, groups. Uh, because uh, then we had the opportunity to cross-correlate. Uh, so if one group see it in that direction, another group can see it in another direction, so we can point out to where it is. Uh, 
So we did that. Three groups communicated with the walkie-talkie as was possible that time in the early 80s. And uh, not long time after, uh, we have went to the different locations up in the mountains, three different mountains. Uh, we saw something, or I saw something, and another group saw the same thing. And what surprised me, it was how strong intensity the light was. Uh, I hadn't any expectation before I went to the valley. I didn't even believe I I would see something because, well, if you go there and see something strange, it's how uh, how uh, is the how big is the possibility to see something? But anyway. Uh, it was much stronger than I would ever expected. Uh, and it just suddenly was on the location. We couldn't, didn't notice where it was coming from. Uh, it was low in the valley. Uh, so from my position, I didn't see it all the time because it was just behind a small hill. Between me and the and the uh, phenomena, as we call it, the UFO phenomena. Uh, sometimes it went up; it moved up and down, and uh, moved a little bit around in the district as well. It could uh, stand still for several minutes on one location, and then it started to move again. Uh, well, so it's something that no aircraft in a conventional sense could do because these kind of erratic and you know right angle movements stop and go that's you know apart i think apart from a helicopter probably not a lot nothing can really do that so that's already fascinating yes and actually the other group was looking down to it so it was uh, they were above uh, this uh, phenomenon and um, so with what kind of feeling did this first sighting leave you? Because I believe after that, then um, you kind of really started the um, Hestalen project. So what went through your mind when you, when you saw this? Did you have any theories, initial ones, or were you just completely stunned and thought, well, I don't know what it is, but this needs to be studied? <laughs> yes, it was like that. I'm curious. and want to find out more. Uh, about uh, things I experienced. And uh, uh, my first uh, thought was, what could that be? What was it? And, of course, I have read about it in the newspaper as well. So I suddenly um, knew that um, those who have seen this, this is real phenomena. Um, It is a little bit different when you see it yourself instead of just hearing about it. And now I saw it myself. Uh, When I went back to Oslo, the main capital where I was living, uh, I was working as a research fellow at that time. Um, I had to uh, talk about my my companions and the other researchers about this um, happening. 
And I was uh, told that, um, well, you shouldn't uh, involved in UFO because uh, that's not serious. Um, people don't want to believe such kind of things. So they warned me, in fact, to stay away from such kind of research. Well, that triggered me even more. Uh, I didn't do anything at the moment that was early 1982, or, well, not early 1982, it was actually in September 1982. Um, And uh, everyone, uh, newspaper people, expected that some research facility would do something, go up in the valley and do some measurement or whatever. But it turned out that uh, no one did. So, do you think? Um, do you think history would have played out differently if um, the national use and use would have covered the um, the phenomena differently, rather than using the word UFO and kind of treating it in a derisive way? If they had actually, you know, said like, "Look, there is something going on." Do you think your colleagues and also the university? universities would have been more willing to actually send researchers up there right away? Yes, that's uh, possible uh, because uh, the attitude or the frightening of the subject did stop uh, many people from doing things. But you have also the other topic when you do research. You have to have fundings to support your support, uh, your research that also, of course, uh, stop uh, many, many from doing uh, things because you need to find funding, fund, funding. Yes, yes. And um, so, as someone with a uh, scientific background myself, I'm then really intrigued about the year 1983 when you kind of went about setting up uh, Project Hestalen because I know how even for more mainstream subjects, how difficult it often is to get funding, recruit people, etc. So how did you go about doing this? And also, you know, you're dealing with a phenomenon that's a phenomenon in the truest sense because you just have no idea what it is. So how did you go about setting up Project Hestalen? Yeah, we decided to set up, I and some friends, uh, decided to set it up uh, actually in June 1983. <laughs> My first uh, tour to Hestalen was in September 1982 when I had these sightings. And uh, uh, me and some friends, we discussed uh, uh, this a lot. Um, we uh, had a meeting uh, back in 1983 where we gathered and uh, discussed this topic and decided, well, no one else do something. Why cannot we do something? So we decided to start a project. We hadn't any money. We didn't have any founding. <laughs> but anyway, we used our free times to prepare a field investigation uh, which we decided to take place in January and February 1984, half a year after our meeting or decision. And during that uh, period, uh, 
we had a lot of contact with different research facilities, um, the military asking for help. Uh, they did uh, support us with both um, uh, knowledge and uh, instruments. So many of the instruments uh, we had during our first fieldwork in 1984 was due to the fact that uh, we managed to get a good contact with some people uh, in different research facilities and also in the military, who, of course, those were also interested in this topic. Uh, They could help support us with the instruments which we borrowed. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> we managed to ca- gather some people who was interested. I think uh, at the most, or oh, oh, totally 40 people participate in the field work. Uh, no one did they get any money for it. So they have to cover their all their expenses. We didn't have any money. Uh, although what we have the will and we was willing to <laughs> take uh, uh, holidays we had and etc. And that wow. was enough to get some data. Well, amazing. Um, before we continue this chronological overview, um, there's actually one topic I wanted to talk um, with you about a bit more, and you already mentioned it now in, in your overview here, and that's the role of the military, because I think, you know, if you're interested in UFO phenomenon, unfortunately, you will come across you know many entanglements with the military, conspiracy theories, and so on. So I'm really interested to hear how this worked out. So did the military approach you? Did you approach the military? Are they still interested in the phenomenon in Norway? Um, because from an you know US perspective, a UK perspective, the military is very interested, obviously, but um, there's some good evidence to suggest that they want to keep it, you know, behind lockers. So um, it's interesting to hear that the military got involved in a um, public and um, in a public project like this. Yes, yeah, I will say it was uh, me who had the responsibility for the scientific and technical uh, part of this first fieldwork. So it was natural that I should have contact with the, the different. Uh, uh, research facilities and the military. So, uh, we wrote a lot of uh, uh, letters uh, sent to different asking for help, um, both universities and the military. Uh, so I made the first contact in that way. And we, uh, some of them <clears throat> responses uh, were positive. Uh, they said they would help us. Uh, I think that we had a plan. Uh, we want, told them what we wanted to do. We wanted to have some instruments out in the field. People are reading instruments. So I, maybe they got the impression that uh, this is uh, something we should support, not um, necessarily with money, but with help, uh, work, work time. 
So uh, we had several meetings, though, uh, both with military and also the other fellows from research facilities. Uh, they told me privately why they was interested in the cause that they have they were aware of this phenomenon and they wanted to find out more themselves and uh, uh, now uh, some volunteers as we were uh, wanted to do something it was i think it's quite natural for them to to help us uh, with with the project which i did yeah. so um so you mentioned so you there there's some evidence that should to suggest that the military was already aware of this phenomenon which you know to my mind makes sense because as we will see later um it's a phenomenon that did also show up on radar so I, I suppose the military was to some degree aware of it. And, um, so I think what you then did with, with your team probably gave them, how can we say, a good, you know, a good cover in, so to speak, to actually learn more about the phenomenon without actually sending own personnel to Hestalen to, to do the um, feet on the ground work. I don't know if that theory makes sense, but um, for me, it's quite fascinating to hear that the military took an active interest and, um, you know, supportive role in all of this, um, because traditionally, at least in um, in the US and the UK, that's um, not really the case. So it's very interesting for international listeners. Yes, the military was interested, and of course, we didn't tell everyone about that. We had some private meetings, let me call it that, with with both the military and the other research fellow. Uh, we didn't hide it directly, but it's not common at that time to tell it to everyone about uh, such kind of things. And of course, that probably made it more easy for them to get involved. Uh, in one point on time, I remember that they stated that uh, they didn't want that we should go to the press or tell them, tell about uh, their involvement. They want to be a little bit uh, in the background, uh, but they should help us, uh, which we was very glad of. And well, we didn't go to the press telling about that in the beginning. I can tell it now because uh, it turned out later, some couple of years later, that uh, they did it. They told it uh, official in a way. So, um, so but it's did, not did a you did you ever have to? sign a non-disclosure agreement with the military? Um, are they still taking an interest in it? Or was this only during the initial phase in the early 1980s that they were involved? Uh, early 1980s, uh, we... Um, no, I didn't sign any. Okay. Such, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think we all understood uh, at that time, and I really understood it as well, that we shouldn't go to the press about this. Uh, that was not necessary uh, at that time. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> we had a very good uh, relationship with these people who also 
was interested in the topic. So we had a good cooperation. They helped us uh, both with the instruments and also some equipment. They even uh, on some a couple of um, occasion they brought they sent us some some uh, people. For instance, when we had the field work, uh, we wanted to set up a, a station, or we we split in. We had decided to have several smaller station with uh, some equipment uh, around in the valley uh, and uh, they helped us bring up the equipment to this uh, station so that was that was good we had a good relationship uh, um, they were interested and uh, uh, we had uh, two field works uh, back in one in 1984 and also one in 1985 um, in the winter time, that time as well, uh, they helped us both in oh, in both uh, fieldworks. But in 1985, the year after, uh, the amount of sightings, the amount of data we gathered was very little compared with with the one in the first year. So we all believed it. Uh, wouldn't um, it had gone and uh, didn't continue, um, and that was a very pity because uh, uh, the military and or and uh, they said that we would probably get full funding for doing a big uh, new uh, field work the year after if we managed to get as much data as we did in the first year, 1984. But sadly, we got only one good sightings in 1985 compared with more than 50 in 1984. We believed it had gone and there was no idea to plan any new uh, fieldwork after that. How convenient for the military. They saved a lot of money, <laughs> but uh, very unfortunate for you. Yeah. Um, great. Um, so 1984 then was the year where you um, saw most of the sightings. Now, before we go into um, what these sightings looked like, if we can categorize them, um, how did you go about setting up a research methodology um did you have different experts there from from different um scientific fields and um what were your um what was your methodology like because i think studying a phenomenon that you don't even know or have no idea what it could be um is quite quite difficult right so how did you go about doing this well if you go back to 84 and 85 when we had this uh, discussion with the uh, different scientists from different uh, uh, institutions and the military we had, they were experts. We had meeting with them. So the results we got was discussed with them and uh, they helped us with uh, some of the analyzing and so on. Um, but uh, that was back that at that time. Uh, things have happened after that. And now we... Uh, uh, we uh, 
want to have, or we have also had some uh, scientists from different countries who take an active role in uh, doing some uh, research in the field. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> they have their expert on course. Uh, the the pity is that <laughs> the big money has never yet come, uh, uh, and uh, you know UFO is a difficult. Uh, it it, I th- it was difficult to get funding for our activities, so um, we haven't uh, done any. Let me see, a real great uh, research project uh, with um, with uh, the the activities uh, the research facilities which are needed to get uh, results uh, because well we as I mentioned I didn't we didn't get any funding well actually a little bit funding from the military but uh, uh, not uh, not much at all. Uh, so we, the people who took part of it, uh, used their own money for taking part of it in the beginning. And if you want to study this uh, really good, you have to do it in another way. Uh, I could say also that. Uh, after 1985, when we all thought it had gone, and uh, we didn't plan any new fieldwork due to that, uh, it was by a coincidence maybe that uh, the people up in Hestown wanted to know what had happened after our research activities uh, up in the valley. Um, and uh, I took. Uh, I was invited to go to Heston. That was eight years after our last fieldwork, back in 1993 it was. And I had a presentation where I told uh, the local people about uh, the in- growing interest uh, among uh, scientists. Uh, I had been to several um conferences uh, scientific conferences presented uh, what we had and uh, made some contact with different uh, research which they were interested so i told them about that uh, it's slowly growing the interest in and growing the acceptance of that it is a real phenomenon after my presentation in Hestown, uh, one of the inhabitants came up to me after my presentation and said, well, it still continues, he said. Oh, I was uh, surprised because I hadn't uh, heard about it. And he said, well, we don't tell it anymore. We stopped telling it because... There was so much ridiculing when we did that last time. Uh, so we, we decided to not tell it to anyone. Yes, I think that's 
unfortunately, um, still very much the uh, situation today, although after 2017, it has changed somewhat. But I think, you know, still for a lot of people, um, be it in academia or the wider public, it's um, difficult to um, to approach this, this phenomenon without being, um, you know, um, made to appear ridiculous so that's that's very unfortunate and something we still all have to um deal with and fight with um coming back to 1984 so the year when um you got most of the sightings and most of the data um could you describe what the um phenomenon actually looked like what forms it took there is we have split the, the different uh, sightings the different uh, happenings uh, in in four different gr- groups um, one group is uh, flashing light uh, it can be down in the valley of course uh, short flashes fraction of a second uh, and it is normally white or blue um, and we found out when uh, you see one of these flashing which can be hard to see because of the short time you know you have to be a very aware of but anyway when uh, this flashing start to happen it normally get more of these uh, uh, sightings uh, we first become aware of those uh, many years after our field works uh, because we started to see something on the cameras which we hadn't seen when we took the picture well anyway uh, it turned out that that's one type short flashing um, the second one is uh, balls of light with different shapes different behavior, different speed, different uh, duration. Uh, so much uh, we have de- even discussed if we should split type 2 uh, in several other groups because, uh, well, uh, it can one is can last for minutes or even hours. It can stand still for a long period of time on one location, on one spot up in the mountain. Uh, And uh, it can also have an enormous speed. Uh, On one occasion, we had the opportunity to measure a speed of 30,000 kilometers an hour. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, well, that uh, second type uh, with different shapes and and so on, uh, mostly yellow or even also some other colors. Uh, can they also be, um, be more colors uh, involved, but mostly yellow? The third type is uh, where you have several lights uh, together. And when they're moving, they all move uh, together as if they are connected to something. And uh, when this type of phenomena uh, has been seen, uh, when it's not completely dark outside, 
the witness uh, tell that uh, it seems to be some kind of black object these lights are connected to. Uh, we have seen that so many times as well, so it even been pictures and, and, and uh, video. Uh, so we have decided to, to put that in a separate type. So that's type three. Does does with type three does the object have a particular form, like a triangle or um, a square, or is there any sort of geometric pattern? Or? It seems that the, the form is uh, different. Uh, some describe it as an uh, elliptical, oval-shaped, uh, around. Uh, uh yeah sh shape like that with uh, the with different uh, lights onto it uh it has also been uh, uh longer uh, like uh, like a cigar uh and uh, it has also been um, been um, um well i think that's that's the two we don't have so very many Uh, where had the which have had the opportunity to see it when it's so dark or so when it's light enough to describe the the form but uh, <clears throat> we have no uh, triangular at that time uh, well let me see no we have actually one triangular as well um, uh, so well uh, We cannot, uh, uh, even if we have different shapes on these uh, objects which connect the different lights, um, we haven't decided to split that in um, uh, several types. That's, that's one type. Well, I could mention also that the different types behave so differently. Uh, so sometimes it's very hard to believe it's the same thing. For instance, if you think of a short flashing light, uh, yellow or white or blue, and if you compare that with a ball of light uh, lasting for even up to hours, and you have this third one with the several lights connect on to some type which look like an object, it's hard to believe that this is due to the same phenomena. So that is also one of the reasons why we call it the Heston phenomena and not the Heston phenomenon, because uh, it may be different uh, things we observe. And uh, if so, If it is different things or different solution on what it is, why does all of them happen in a small Norwegian valley? It brings us to believe there must be something. Indeed, yes. It's very it's very peculiar and perhaps we can uh, spend a few minutes talking about that in, um, in a subsequently. Um, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you with your overview of the different types because I believe there's a fourth one as well, right? Um, fourth type. Yes, the fourth one is not so common. It's more like what we can say, more uh, standardized <laughs> 
daylight uh, UFO observation, uh, which we have decided to split in, take in a fourth uh, type. Uh, not necessarily always lights on it, uh, but uh, seems to be some kind of object uh, which many people think of uh, when they he- hear the word UFO. Uh, the picture which many people come up with, with can be similar like that. Uh, been seen mostly in the daytime, um, not always lights on it. It can be lights on it as well, but uh, not always. So that's the that's the four type. Mm-hmm. And with these four types, um, is there anything in their behavior to suggest that these cannot be natural phenomena? Because some listeners might think, okay, you have flashes of light, sounds like a pretty natural phenomenon to me. Um, is there anything to suggest in kind of the way these these different types behave that this is something totally anomalous? Is there some sort of interaction between observers and, um, and these phenomena? Yes, that's, uh, uh, we have, uh, uh, we can discuss the different types, uh, how uh, strange it is. Uh, let me see, where should I start? Um, I can mention also this flashing light is happening down in uh, the valley. You're looking down to it, very often down to the river. Um, it's not uh, far up in mm-hmm. the sky. Uh, that mm-hmm. was also, of course, but uh, I think the most interesting is when you can look down to it or you have the mountain in behind. Um, it doesn't seem to, so far, it hasn't seems to have any electrical uh, properties um, and so on. Uh, so some other strange thing is that uh, when we have ma- managed to take an optical spectrum, um, there has been what we call a continuous optical spectrum, which could indicate, well, for instance, a solid type of material is can be, if you think of uh, heat and uh, uh, such kind of thing, uh, that could give a continuous spectrum. Um, but when this uh, thing uh, is moving very fast, uh, without any sound uh, at all. For instance, the light which we measured to 30,000 kilometers an hour uh, by looking on the radar, uh, which was also seen by the people outside the, the, uh, looking at the light. Without any sound, you should expect, if it was any kind of solid thing, you should have expected some sound from it. That haven't been been, uh, uh, noticed or observed uh, in in this. Uh, And also, we have stories where people can see it just coming out from nowhere, uh, starting to 
to glow or even object has been seen like that um, and can also just disappear out from nowhere. We have also measured or follow it uh, on the, our radar screen uh, when we haven't seen anything where the radar say it is something. And that has been a very often strong radar uh, reflection. Uh, well, so there's, there's something solid in the sky somewhere, but you can't see it. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we have discussed this with a radar expert and uh, explained that we didn't see anything. And the only, th- only thing that they could uh, think of which could give such a big, uh, strong radar echo uh, was a local ionized field. You know, plus and minus, uh, um, much of plus and much of minus in, uh, in a short period, a short um, uh, area. And our volume uh, that could give such a big reflection, but if that's the case, how could this um, uh, be made? How could this uh, occur? Uh, so we have some uh, some uh, things which uh, I would say it's it's strange, and also especially if you think of. Type four uh, observations uh, where people see what they, it seems like an object. Um, and uh, uh, that is also hard to uh, explain uh, uh, as a natural phenomenon. Um, and uh, and uh, the movement is also without any sound, etc. And very, very interesting. It all suggests that it's very unlikely that um, something uh, out of the natural world per se. Um, has there been any sort of, um, how can I say this, like signs of intelligence or interaction? So what I'm trying to say is that is there is there something to suggest that this that there is some sort of uh, intelligence involved in in these phenomena? Uh, I would say, well, first of all, it's a very difficult topic. Uh, what should you define yes. as intelligent? Uh, although we have had some few, very few, I would say, very few uh, observations and happenings which could indicate uh, that and of course it can, I must say could indicate because it may also be other uh, topic as well because it's uh, very difficult to to uh, go into that but uh, I can think of well I can mention only on one uh, experience we did we, we used a, a weak laser pointing at the flashing light coming during the fieldwork um, not a strong laser. And when we pointed the laser beam towards this flashing, it dif- changed the flashing frequency. Uh, wow. And we, we didn't, uh, we took the laser down again after some uh, seconds and uh, 
the flashing went back to normal again. It seems to be some kind of uh, interaction or some kind of reaction or whatever. Even if our laser was very weak, only one milliwatt. Uh, We did that test for uh, nine times and eight of those nine times uh, this thing happened. Uh, and if you if you uh, bring in another happening in co- maybe in, in connection with this one uh, that was a sighting very local to where the station or uh, station was uh, people was uh, just outside uh, it was three people and there was a red light moving around their feet, so it was very, very close. Uh, and uh, it looked like they were the same color as the laser we had used actually one week earlier. It was still during the fieldwork. And uh, this uh, red light moving for some seconds around the feet of the observers. Uh, And it looked like the same type of light we had used as our laser, red red beam of light. Uh, So when we did the red checking with the observers of this light um, and uh, asked them if it was like this. I was pointing the laser towards the ground for snow. Uh, and you can imagine when it's snow and you point a red laser to it, <laughs> it's on the ground. It's And the snow is illuminating um, red or reflecting red. And uh, the, the witness to this uh, happening, this uh, this red light uh, around the feet. They said it was just like this, but it was uh, just a little bit um, weaker. Well, that's an happening in combination with the laser test we did that someone will say that's an uh, answer or whatever to our test, pointing a laser to them. Uh, they, but of course, it's it's a very very difficult or diff, uh, very uh, you cannot say that it doesn't prove uh, mm-hmm. intelligence. Mm-hmm. No, but but thanks for sharing this. Um, well, anecdotal evidence. I think it's very important to you know even even if an alternative theory might make sense, it's important to record everything. And so, thanks a lot for sharing this. Very very interesting. Um, is there, so I, I gathered you collected data with different technical instruments, radar, Geiger counters, magnetic measurements, etc. Um, are there any physical um, traces left by these phenomena? Did you do ground sample analyses? Is there any physical trace? In Heston, it's very little physical uh, samples or where you can say they have landed or something. Uh, we have found some, but we cannot say that these are due to the phenomena. It can be maybe some ap- other happenings. So in Hestown, we don't have. Uh, 
but we have another um, happenings uh, in another part of Norway, also in the winter time, where people was seeing a similar light as in Hestan, yellow light type two. Uh, coming into this, this mountainous area where they was located. There was in a cottage, in fact. It was dark outside. It was snow. Uh, there was become aware of this light uh, coming in the, in the valley. And uh, <clears throat> they saw this light uh, go down to the snow. And uh, when it went down to the snow, uh, it uh, well, first of all, the snow illuminated very much because of the light. It reflected right from the uh, observation. Uh, but the light itself um, suddenly turned off or become much weaker uh, when it touched the the ground, and after some very few seconds. It uh, slowly went up again, uh, and when it did that, it slowly increased the intensity again, and it moved back in the same direction, not up, but it, it uh, was following the valley. You could They could see the hillside in the background, so it was down in the valley, uh, and it when it was moving away, it slowly increased the intensity again. We, they managed. They went the day after. They they went to the location to see if there was any track, and it was. Uh, and uh, some days later, uh, we managed to take samples of the snow, um, both in the track and also reference uh, samples, and found out uh, that uh, the amount of bacteria in the snow uh, where the track was, uh, it has been decreased. It was another type of bacteria. It seems that the bacteria had been killed. and the nearest reference uh, was uh, only, I think, uh, if I remember, a little bit more than one meter away from the track. Uh, it was a normal amount of bacteria in the snow. And also, the, like the other reference uh, samples we took, it was quite normal. And it was another type of bacteria because it had, the, when you measure the bacteria, you grow and so on. Uh, and uh, the bacteria who was still alive in the tract itself was a different type, which uh, the analyzer said it's a, a type of bacteria which are more hard to kill. Was there any sign of radiation in that area? or? Uh, we didn't measure elect- uh, radioactive radiation at that time. We, mm-hmm. we only took uh, samples from the snow. Mm. But a very fascinating case because it shows that there was some sort of um, interaction or at least impact uh, from the UAP on its environment. Um I'm wondering, because with many um, UFO cases in history, there have either been, you know, 
good effects or bad effect, effects on um, human individuals, observers, experiences, whatever you want to call them. Have any of these happened in, in Hestalen? Because quite a few people have been there by now. Um, is there anything reported in terms of effects on humans? or? Uh, I would say no, not what we are aware of. Um, um, the humans up there, uh, well, some of them in the beginning, very few was a little bit afraid, of course, because when this happening just outside your window, uh, moving a big light in not so far away from your house, uh, illuminating inside the house, you can, well, it's uh, a reason to be a little bit uh, concerned, a little bit uh, <laughs> yes. afraid. <laughs> to say the least, yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, not so. It This happened for uh, many times. As I mentioned, at the most we had 40, oh, um, sorry, 20 observations a week at the most um, during early 80s so the local people up there started to be aware um it wasn't any uh, even if it was strange they wasn't afraid of it anymore because there was uh, so i haven't uh, heard of any um, damage or anything for the people up there it's um, it's uh, uh, maybe I can say not dangerous. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 very interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, because as I, as I said, sometimes with um, UAPs, um, you do get um, effects on on humans, and I believe also that's something Gary Nolan recently has been uh, talking about quite a bit in the US. Um, so. Very interesting and good to hear because then I'm more inclined to actually visit Hestalen soon. <laughs> so that's uh, yes. that's that's good. Um, yeah, so we're we're still in the 1980s and uh, moving moving forward a bit chronologically. Um, so I believe in the 1990s um, the phenomenon slowed down a bit. You already said that the um, main period was really kind of in the early 80s. Um, but in the 90s, you installed the automatic measuring um, system. Um, could you could perhaps briefly um, talk a bit about this? Yes. Uh, as I mentioned, I had a presentation. Now become aware that it still continued back in 1993 when I had a presentation. I also decided to start the project again. And then I was working at the University College. And it was started from that place. Uh, I had been to several conferences, so I invited uh, those uh, scientists, maybe most of it uh, physicists, to a conference in Hestown, which took place in 1994, where we discussed the phenomena. Uh, and uh, I also decided to, instead of running a fieldwork again, uh, maybe we should set up an automatic station with cameras, record, computer system, um, detecting uh, what's happening. Uh, I use my a topic for my students uh, at uh, the university 
college to to build such a uh, cabin blue box in fact in ca- uh, it was installed in 1998 uh, after they had been working on it for on different groups though from 1994 to 1998 it was uh, ready to be installed in Hestown uh, and it uh, was running uh, as I mentioned that you have cameras and you have computer who analyze pictures from the camera and if something light shows up uh, it record and um, uh, and send the alarm pictures to our server uh, that uh, station has been in uh, development it has been uh, giving data uh, um, a long period of time um, we, it hasn't, even if uh, we had some instruments in there, uh, we had some cameras and yeah, computers and so on, uh, and we had gathered a lot of uh, interesting pictures of the phenomena, uh, mostly uh, uh, flashing lights though, but also other yellow type, type two lights. Uh, which has been uh, gathered automatically from this station, uh, which people can look at if they go to www.hestalen.org. Uh, Hestalen with two S, Hestalen. And uh, <clears throat> where the, the data is inside there, uh, I would say that uh, even if the station has been in operation, uh, the equipment inside uh, have never been real, let me see, professional, uh, really good cameras, really good uh, computer equipment and so on. Um, But we have managed to get some data anyway. Uh, Now we are uh, working with getting uh, we are building. We are making a new what we call project test town. Uh, it's not connected to our university college anymore. Um, it's a, a group of us again who uh, want to make new instrument or bring new instruments into the uh, station. There's a group uh, now. Uh, more people who are expert and. Uh, uh, um, the plan of building this uh, new, what we call blue box, um, is in the progress just now. So I believe when we got uh, real good instruments, real good cameras, and real good other instruments as well, uh, which we know that the phenomena uh, can get into, for instance, the radar. We have the magnetometer, etc. Uh, I'm very hopeful that we'll get uh, m- maybe a breakthrough. I hope so <laughs> uh, when we have this in operation. Yes, and um, you know, I th- I think um, Project Stalin really um, occupies a unique position in that it's a civilian research effort into understanding the phenomenon and um, I think the work you did is amazing because you 
you know, thought creatively how to um, manage this project, how to set it up with limited amounts of um, funding. So I read that um, you involve your students and you just said that you involve them and that you bring them there to um, to um, help you and to study the phenomenon. And I think that's that's so great because it shows that, you know, we can actually manage to, to study um, the subjects that are currently frowned upon by thinking creatively. And, um, and I mean, just thinking back at my university days, I mean, how cool would, have, would that have been to, uh, you know, go to a remote area to study UFOs? I mean, it must be, you know, it mu- you must have a very popular course at university, I imagine. <laughs> yes, the, the students love it. Yes, uh, of course. And we also uh, had some activity for younger students, uh, which hadn't been a student at university college. We had also an activity for for younger students, uh, where, which we call science camp, where we bring uh, these up to uh, Hestown, where they stay together with their teachers, uh, a class. Uh, and their teachers, uh, we give them instruments and uh, tents, and uh, where they stay out in the in the mountainous area. Uh, it's a little bit tough; it's cold, <laughs> but uh, it's very popular uh, because something really happening. They're studying. Um, they're, they're trying to get the, the correct data for their analyzing <laughs> themselves, yes. the young students, you know. So uh, the, 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 the engagement from these students is enormous. So we have, well, we use that as a topic, uh, not only for mystery, but also teach them a little bit mathematics, a little bit physics, mm-hmm. and a little bit nature, uh, nature and so on. And uh, they have learned a lot. So if someone, if there is any teacher who has students, uh, our young students, uh, and they have a local local place where they can go out, bring them out in the nature, looking for a mysterious thing, Mm. that's that's, uh, very good. You should do that. Absolutely. And I think that's also where the future of, of this field lies, right? Um, UAP studies, because, um, with the older generation, there's still a lot of, you know, biases and stigma attached to it. But bringing young people to it who don't know all the kind of historical baggage attached to the subject, I think is really the right way, way forward. And, um, I think that's, um, looks, looks quite promising for the future. Uh, now, look, Erling, you've been very generous with your time. Um, I do have one, uh, rather two final big questions, <laughs> you know, the best always for, for the end. So um, we already touched on it a bit. What is the um, – it's, it's kind of weird, isn't it, that you have um, this small valley in the middle of nowhere that has been such a hot spot. Um, why why is that would you be willing to share any theories or opinions on that because i suppose it's still an unresolved issue so 
Yes. Uh, why does it happen in a small Norwegian valley? We have asked us that question a lot, of course. And uh, we have thought of different things. Uh, one of the things that uh, the geophysics, the mountains, is there something uh, specific in that uh, uh, mountainous area? Uh, we have had scientists, the geophysicists, who have done investigation up there. Uh, and they found results which I think are interesting, uh, unusual uh, uh, magnetical uh, uh, things uh, among uh, electrical properties, etc. Uh, they say it's a little bit unusual. They haven't measured like these other places. But from there, to say that this is the reason why it happened. That's a big step. We don't know. Yes. No, thanks. That makes sense. So it's probably up to future research to resolve this issue, but definitely an enigma. It's um, kind of ever since I've been following uh, your work, I've been asking myself this as well. Why Why a small remote valley <laughs> in, uh, in Norway? Yeah. And um, the final question I have is, um, it's great to see that you're still continuing work in, in Hestalen and actually, you know, have more things planned. So what is the next chapter in a few sentences? Well, the next chapter is to make a plan for getting supporters for, for our new uh, project. Because uh, if we have enough uh, people who can uh, support us with uh, not much money, a little bit money, uh, which most people, I think, can afford, um, if uh, enough people do that, well, then we get enough funding to get the activity, to get the instruments, to bring out um, the data to people. Because our plan is to, these new instruments we are, we are planning to bring into Hestown, uh, good quality uh, instruments that of course cost money, so we need some money. Uh, and also um, we are planning to let the data out to people. Uh, I've always done that because I think there are researchers maybe around which can study the data and um, maybe use that data as a, as a new thing. So the new thing is that people can become uh, members of Project Testdown the website uh, www.hestown.org will soon be changing uh, and it will be much more easy for people to give a little bit um, um, support. And for those who do that, uh, they will get some something extra, something data which are not um, common for everyone, etc. So we are in the process of, of uh, making this. 
Perfect. Yeah. Um, what, what a great uh, note to close on. And I'll make sure to include the link to your website in the description of this episode. Um, look, Erling, you've been very generous with your time. I can only say thanks a lot. And thanks so much for you making your all your data available online. It's been a tremendous resource over the last years. And, um, you know, really looking forward to uh, seeing what's happening in the near future. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much. 